People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Welcome to Kidney Talk. We're here on location in San Francisco. Yes, and what a beautiful city it, it is. It is, and we're at, I know how to say it, we're at the American Nephrology Nursing Association, ANNA. It is not ANNA, it's ANNA. Okay, did somebody teach that to you? Yes, or? that was drilled into me. It's not ANNA, it's ANNA. Okay, it? that's interesting. <laughs> and our guest today is Cesar Romero. <laughs> well, actually, it's Romero Valdez. Romero Valdez. And, yes, and I've known Romero. I for, love Romero Valdez. I love Romero, too. <laughs> Romero is so wonderful. I've known him for years, and he has dealt with a lot of difficult patients, I believe, but I think there's just as many difficult staff as patients, yes. so he's going to tell us correct. how to yes. deal with... Have, have you ever dealt with difficult staff before? I, I once had a really nasty streptococcus kind of thing. A staph infection. Staph infection. <laughs> We're actually, no, Stephen, didn't you get the notes that I gave you before the meeting? This oh, is about are these the no- difficult I, I personnel, them, but, uh, you know, healthcare professionals, not infections. Oh, okay. Employees. Employees. Oh, I, oh, boy, I have lots of stories about uh, staff, but. No, I, you know, I remember a story once where it's, it's really difficult because as a patient who's lived with an illness for a very long time, the one thing I want is control. And, you know, certain healthcare professionals really love that. And, and sometimes they just resent it. And, it, and then, they, then they become difficult to me when they don't understand that I want control. A lot of the topics today is going to be about that and how to deal with it. So welcome to the show, Romero. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm humbled to be here with such a, a glamorous person sitting beside me. Oh, I don't even have my makeup on. <laughs> well, remember, you always look good on radio. So Yeah, he has a face for radio, huh? You're looking yeah. very good today on radio. But I understand yeah. being on radio adds 10 pounds. It, uh, <laughs> That's television, sorry, never mind. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. We are at the ANNA meeting. ANNA is the American Nurses Association. That's why they don't want you to say ANNA. It's A-N-N-A. I so. wondered why they were, you know, it's like yes. it's A-N-N-A. Not, and I'm like, Anna's is yes. easier to say. It, it is easier, but there is also uh, the A-N-N-A website, ANNA.org. Well, well tell us a little bit about how you got involved in helping people with, you know, kidney disease and getting involved in the whole renal community. Okay, I have been a, uh, I, I'm a social worker. I have a, um, I, an MSW, and so I do social work. And I did social work in dialysis clinics for many, many years. About 10 years I worked frontline dialysis. And then I became an administrator. And then I went from there to the ESRD network of Texas. The networks are like a, a professional watchdog. They oversee um, the, the dialysis clinics in a certain region. And I was the director of patient services where I took patient complaints where patients complained about staff and about doctors and nurses and things like that. I did that for seven years, and now I have my own company, Valdez Seminars, 
where I, I go around the country and I deal with difficult people. And uh, no, I do other things besides that, but um, uh, that's it. That, uh, the way I got involved in it was I, I really, it really, when I started, I um, decided I wanted to know what dialysis was like. And if you have heard of the guy that had a dialysis treatment, I am the one. I had an actual, I volunteered. You volunteered to be on dialysis? Yes, I had a um, dialysis treatment. So what did I they do? One. It was one, one treatment, uh, so not like how did they, how, how did they, they access you? How did they, well, I did not have an access. Uh, well, you didn't have did. a real dialysis treatment. Well, <laughs> actually, it was, it was real as far as it felt real. I got stuck, okay, I got, got stuck, stuck a couple of times. And, uh, I guess it's like I, baking with the Easy Bake Oven. It <laughs> is, it is. I sat there in the dialysis chair and I got stuck with a couple of needles and then I sat for a long time in the chair. Well, the first thing I became aware of when I was sitting there was um, I felt like I was on the dark side of the moon. Uh, I felt like there was these two machines on either side of me that were beeping and whirring and making all kinds of noises and I couldn't see any human beings. I couldn't see anyone. All I could see was a, a wall on the other side of the clinic with a water stain across it and that was it. And so I sat there and listened to the machines and I felt very lonely sitting there between the two machines and uh, very awkward. I also, um, I got restless legs. I mean, I got rest, I, I mean, and I, I want you all to know it was awkward getting rest. I mean, I have a PhD, you know, I am an intelligent man. I was telling myself, I can't be doing this. One of the things that comes up a lot for people is like, we go into the clinic and we have one particular healthcare professional that we really like and we trust and we want that person to take care of us. And it's really difficult because then the staff will say, no, no, we got to rotate. And if you've ever had your access infiltrate, it, it's yeah. very scary. And then you get, you get worried because you, so what do you do when patients, you know, they call me, they're like, the, the staff's being difficult because they don't understand I want the one healthcare professional to take care of me. Well, one of the, the, the first things I say to patients is that uh, accidents happen sometimes something like this could happen. And if a patient completely blocks off a nurse or a PCT, a, a technician, and says, I don't ever want this person to treat me again because this person made a mistake, what the patient is doing is, is uh, sort of closing off a portion of the care that the patient could be receiving, or which could otherwise be very helpful. And then if someone else makes a mistake and the patient eliminates that one and then someone else makes a mistake, then the patient eventually is down to just one person. But we're afraid. System. So uh, the real I thing is we're really afraid because we've had a bad experience. Sure. So is there something that the patient could say or how do you connect with a healthcare professional? Because I've had... I mean, sometimes people come at me with needles and you're afraid because they've had a bad experience and we all know a needle doesn't go in well when you're tense. So, I mean, should all healthcare professionals know a few jokes or something to like <laughs> um, be able to help us relax? It wouldn't hurt if they, if they, uh, you know, they, they, they could tell you a joke like, this isn't gonna hurt or something yeah, like that, you know? <laughs> uh, that would be I like the <laughs> one that I said to her, I said, is this gonna hurt? She goes, I'm not gonna feel a thing. <laughs> That's a good one, yeah. Um, actually, it, it's best if the patient doesn't, if I'd say the patient gives a second chance to the patient, who's, to the staff member who's made a mistake. And it's a good opportunity for the patient to tell the staff member, uh, this, what you did hurt, 
and let's, let's try and work together on this so that it's not going to hurt me. Now the patient is afraid. How do you overcome fear? Well, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, say for the center of peril, then it's periphery. Yeah, but he wasn't a dialysis patient. <laughs> no, but he had... There's he nothing had, to fear but fear <laughs> itself for an unskilled Absolutely. IV nurse. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what you do is, is, is you deal with your pain directly. Well, what, you know, one of the things that helps me is that if a healthcare professional makes a mistake or something like that, is to actually come up and, and acknowledge it. Because when I think of a healthcare professional who... I mean, I've had somebody give me the wrong medicine one time. And I would look at it, and I said, this is the wrong medicine. And they actually acknowledge, oh, thank you, instead of just grabbing it back and, and acknowledging that I'm being an advocate. Because I think the people who live the longest are the ones that are so careful who takes care of them. And so on one way, it's a positive side because our survival instincts, it, when a patient's afraid, that's their survival instincts kicking in. And they have to be addressed or the patient won't trust you. And it, it just breaks down. I, and acknowledging a mistake is an excellent way to do it. And, and just uh, openly admitting we're human and we make mistakes. Part of the problem is that a lot of staff members are afraid of litigation. And they're afraid if they say, I made a mistake, then some patient is gonna go to a lawyer and say, okay, she admitted she made a mistake. I want a million dollars or something like that. So I think one of the things that patients can do also is reassure staff members and say, look, I'm not, I'm not interested in suing. I just want, I, I really want to have a good relationship with you. Staff can be afraid of patients just like patients are afraid of staff. And if we have two scared people with a 15 gauge needle between them, <laughs> that's not a good situation. So I think we can do things to reassure each other. To, I think that's really so important. So that neither of us will be afraid. You know what I wish? I wish they would stop, you know, when you go into the hospital, they would stop asking the same questions. You know, what drugs are you allergic to? And they say, well, I, I just told that nurse or that healthcare worker, they, they have to ask again. You know, and, and it just gets on my nerves. That well, they, it, it, would, it would help if they listened to you. you know? <laughs> but I guess the best thing to do is to carry around a piece of paper and make copies yes. and then pass it out. And you know, what is with that chart? You know, you're in the hospital and there's like 10 little happy faces and they get progressively get sadder and they go, tell me the level of pain you're in. Yeah. And yeah. you know, when they are, I, I had all these tubes in me from this transplant, I said, you know, the picture I'm thinking of is not one of those 10. <laughs> you know, the one I have has a middle finger up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now that I have mastered Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, how many pickled peppers did Peter Piper pick? Let's see what my next challenge will be. Say this three times fast. Fistula first feels fantastic for future fitness. Fistula first feels fantastic for future fitness. Fistula first feels fantastic for future fitness. Now if I only knew what that means. A fistula should be your first choice for your dialysis access. It says here, less infection and less hospitalizations. That's good. Yes. <laughs> Lasts longer. Some patients have had their fistula for more than 30 years. Oy. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. Fistula first feels fantastic for future fitness. 
For more information, please visit FistulaFirst.org. Do it now. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You know, as a patient, I, and to, to tell the audience, too, that it is a world of difference, the attitude of the nurse. And it can make a horrible experience for you, or it could just make a wonderful experience for you. Yes. Uh, I was at University Hospital in Cincinnati, and the very first place I went was, it was a dungeon. It was the worst place I could possibly imagine. Everybody was nurse ratchet. Then I was moved up out of ICU to the regular transplant floor, and it was like night and day. And it was just, the, it wasn't the care, it was just the attitude a difference. A smile makes such a difference, doesn't it? Oh, just coming in and a smile, and that signals to the patient that you like what you're doing. And when you like what you're doing, it then makes us feel that you'll care more about us as opposed, and I know everybody has bad days, but it, it's really important. I mean, if somebody comes in and says, hey, how are you, smiling, and puts it you does, at ease. It, it helps. I, I think uh, I have worked with nurses from many, many specialties, and I, I, I really believe that nephrology nurses have the best demeanor, the best attitude, and it, when you consider what they're going through. Okay. Yeah. Nephrology nurses, I think, are the best. I think, I think it's because they develop a relationship oh, with the patients. Absolutely. Yes. yes. I mean, yes. I had more yes. renal care professionals at my wedding than my own family. I mean, <laughs> it really was. I mean, it, mm -hmm. you, you do. But you, and that's why patients become so connected. Because we know that one person that we can, you know, you almost become like a mom at times. It's like um, you take yeah. care of us, and we don't want some other person taking care of us. We want our mom, because they know how to make us feel good. But I just thought it was in bad taste, the wedding gifts that the <laughs> dialysis people gave yeah. you. You know, dialysate bags. I know, it was, it was. Needles. I know, it was, uh, you know, A mass. blood pressure cup. Well, one of the things, too, I would dislike a healthcare professional if they would yell at me for drinking too much fluid or eating the wrong food. Um, As they sip their big gulp in the break room. Uh, yes, I mean, <laughs> and they would say, you know, I would get a cramp or something on dialysis. Well, you drank too much fluid, you know, like, like I'm being punished. And then that staff member would be labeled difficult in my eyes. What do we do about sure. that? Uh, one of the ways to control that, of course, is uh, uh, maintaining a good relationship with your nurse so that you feel comfortable if she yells at you, you yell back. I mean, you know, if she gets upset with you and says something you, and you feel comfortable with her, you let her know, look, you're, you're, you're crossing the boundary here. But at the same time, we need to be aware that, that the nurse has told a patient at least 15, 20 times in the past 30 treatments, you know, about fluid overloading. And she has told, if she has 100 patients, she probably had 90 of them come in overloaded. And it does, and it means extra work for her if she's, if she's going to have to take this extra fluid off and she has to watch her cramping and things like this. So sometimes she does get a little bit impatient. But I think that the, the way for the patient to deal with it is for if the nurse gets a little uppity and starts raising her voice, then the patient can just say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've got to use the other hand because yeah, yeah, there's oh, needles in that one. Okay, okay. 
<laughs> okay, I've got, I've got to hold this arm steady. The patient can just say, well, hang on a minute, hang on. Uh, you know, what, what's going on here? What, are you having a bad day or what? I mean, she's a human. Uh, and, and then make yourself a human being to her and talk to her and, and accept her as a human and then deal with it and say, you know, you, 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 did you know you're yelling at me? Did you know you just yelled my weight across the room? There you um. go, yes, yes. <laughs> did you know you're yelling? Did you know, do you realize? And, and once, I know this doesn't seem believable, but I got pulled over by a traffic cop one time mm -hmm. and he was yelling at me and I just raised my hand and said, hold on there, young man. I can hear very well. And, and then he got the joke, you know, and, and, he, and then he's, he backed off and he stopped yelling at me. And then he arrested you for a DUI. <laughs> <laughs> then he arrested, no, no, then he gave me a ticket. He still went ahead and gave me the ticket for speeding. But uh, it was, you know, you can tell the person. I think if you just kind of, even you can just raise your hand and say, whoa, whoa, wait yeah. a minute, stop. Well, you know what, though, and I really am a firm believer of this, is a lot of people are committing slow suicide on dialysis. I talk to patients frequently about gaining too much fluid, and they, one of the things is they don't understand that if you don't control your sodium, it's, an impossible to, it's impossible to control your fluid. And it's really difficult, and I have to tell you, the hardest part of being on dialysis is to try to control your fluid. And it's more and more difficult now because, did you know that the, the iced teas that you buy now in the bottles have phosphate and sometimes co contain preservatives that, I mean, the meats have sodium in them. It's much more different than when I was even younger because all the foods are processed today. So patients are getting a lot of hood and sodium that they're not aware of. And I've actually had patients crying, calling RSN crying because they can't control their fluid. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And I, I think a lot of times, if healthcare professionals can say, you know, I know this is so hard, I couldn't do it. And then that validates us and helps us feel that, you know, you understand how hard this is because if you want to have the most difficult diet in the world, and I've had, been on some planning conferences of renal care professionals, and I suggest that we do a renal diet just to give some perspective. And I mean, they're like, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, you ask patients to do it 24 hours, seven days a week. You know, try doing a renal diet for a day. It's difficult. I think you're, you're Stephen, would you mind pouring me some more water while no, we're No, no, he's, he's on dialysis. <laughs> I'm here for something. He, Stephen, he's on dialysis. He can't you're, have you're, any. He's a fluid your abuser. Your talk made me really thirsty, Laurie. Am I, mean, I making I you thirsty? <laughs> yes. Put yes. some hypertonic in that, too. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, I, one of the things that you, that you said earlier was you said, some patients are committing a slow suicide. They're, they're hurting themselves. And in, in the nursing profession, it, it's called the, the chronicity or the longevity the of, of the relationship. Okay? And the nurse then has a relationship with the patient. And as you mentioned, sometimes they become like a mother. Sometimes they're, they're very close to you. And when it, as a mother, they, they do have some feelings when they see you or they see a patient hurting herself. And they get angry. They get upset, and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult not to show that anger. And so maybe that's something that patients can keep in mind. Uh, a lot of times if a patient or if a nurse is, is raising her voice or, it's, or is upset, 
She's angry at what you're doing to yourself. And, and that would probably be good if they actually said, yes, you know, afterwards, yes. if I'm sorry, it's just that I care about you so much. Absolutely. That I don't want you to do this to yourself. So I'm sorry I raised my voice. But you, you have to um, understand because it's like sometimes we're so emotionally fragile that it's, it's anything sets us off and we could be dealing with things. One time I tell healthcare professionals is that, you know, we're dealing with things at home. Sometimes we can't pay our rent. We're losing our job family members, and sometimes our healthcare professionals are the people who we can count on. And then if they, that can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. We come in and then we get this somewhat of rejection feeling and we just kind of lose it. Why is it that they like to make popcorn in the back of the room? <laughs> Shouldn't there uh, be like a law that they can't make any food that smells? Because, you know, you, they won't allow you to eat during dialysis most of the time. A lot of clinics don't, that's correct, yeah. There, there is no, no Medicare regulation that says that, that you cannot eat right. on dialysis. But the problem with eating on dialysis is that patients spill stuff and they get it all over themselves and then they leave traces of food around and then at night their little bugs come out and things like that so they have a hard time cleaning up after themselves after the patients and and I thought um, it was because of infection reasons. Yeah, that's what well, I was told. That, well, I wasn't it, told because of bug control. Well, that, that I was told of other bug control. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> There's another bug too. But, well, patients are not sharing food. So if they're sharing food, that is a bug control problem, yes. They, okay. They shouldn't be sharing food. But if you're eating your own food and feeding yourself, chances are slim you're going to infect yourself unless somebody bleeds on your food. And that could be a possibility also, that somebody bleeds on your How food. How can they bleed on your food? Well, uh, sometimes the, the blood lines may just pop. Well, then I wouldn't eat it. Uh, I mean, if okay. it's in there and blood goes on well, it. Well, you are a okay, difficult she's patient. She's a difficult lady. And, I mean, okay. Blood spurts. And I, I think we should reverse the subject matter. And and I have a difficult sandwich. patients. All right, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't eat it. Okay, I, am, I agree. I agree. I, I, was labeled a pa I, I was labeled a pain in the butt at times. Yeah. I was a difficult, but the difficult patients survive. That is a medical diagnosis, by the way. Pain in the butt. Pain in the okay. butt. Okay, <laughs> that's... Um, you know, it's funny. I had once, you know, I brought food one time, and, of course, they used the line, did you bring enough for everybody? Body, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and then of yeah. course they wouldn't let me eat it. Yeah. But, well, uh, now the, the, getting back to the popcorn in the break room, sometimes <laughs> patients um, do smell the food, I, and and staff do go into the break room and they have a microwave and they want to have a hot lunch, and I think they're entitled to it. I have a friend who, my best friend is, is someone who I've learned, I learned a lot from. Two of them taught me almost, you know, a whole bunch of stuff about working with patients. The, one of the things that I noticed about Alex is that he eats like a nurse, which means that he eats in like two minutes. Okay, he ate an entire meal in like two minutes, and he said, I learned that from years of working at the dialysis clinic. If you don't eat in a hurry, you're not going to eat, period. Okay, <laughs> so they have to eat hurriedly. They have to, and, and they do want a, a hot lunch, so they, they want to warm it. Now, they, do, they should keep the door closed, though. And if they're not closing the door, or when they open the door and the smells come out, that can't be helped unless you put a deodorizer around. But essentially, they need to keep the door closed. And not, not all, all the patient needs to do is say, would you mind closing the door so I don't smell that nauseous popcorn, okay? And I don't, I don't want to be smelling it. So keeping the door closed, and if it gets, if, if it just really is worse, a patient can ask to be moved to another, another location in the clinic, to be moved further away 
from the, the break room and say, I'd like to be at that other corner so I don't have to smell. So the, the tech the who was t cutting the alarm off on my machine with the right hand and had a burrito in her left hand, <laughs> that was the wrong thing to That's do? That's the wrong thing, yes. Yeah. They're not allowed to eat all, out on the floor. Oh, I um, see. No one, None of the staff ever eats out on the floor. <laughs> you didn't go to my clinic. Uh, <laughs> I, I recently got a call from a patient, and uh, she said that they banned cell phones in her facility, and she's very upset about this, but she was actually calling me from under the blanket um, <laughs> in the dialysis chair. And, and then I talked to another patient, like, we allow cell phones. And I think a lot of times, if, if you don't explain to the patient why, and you're just saying it's something else they can't do. Have you, have you had any yes, experience yes, with that? Yes, uh, yes, I, I do. And, and the, well, what needs to be explained to patients is that there are a lot of times when a cell phone could interfere with a, t a certain type of machine. Now, the newer machines, uh, that's probably not going to, that's not going to happen, but some of the older machines can have some interference. Now, the chances are one in a thousand that a phone is, a cell phone is going to interfere with a machine, and it would be only very briefly, and it would not harm the patient at all. But people don't want to take that chance. I, I said that to a physician one time, the chances are one in a thousand, and she said, we do a thousand treatments a month in my clinic. So we're talking then about this happening possibly once a month and we can't have it. So it's because it could interfere with the machine. There's all kinds of frequencies in there with the machines. That is the main reason. But if it does not interfere with the machine, then there, there's no medical reason why they couldn't be allowed to be talking on the cell phone. Then we would have the psychosocial reasons, which is we're having a private conversation. Or a lot of times, like people in the air, at the airport, they pick up the phone and their volume goes up like 10 times. They say, hello, I'm at this such and such airport, and that kind of stuff, okay? And if patients are gonna do that, that can also be disruptive of other patients around. So that would probably be the only other thing I could think of. Yeah, it's, it's important because a lot of patients uh, do try to remain employed, and uh, sometimes they have to be on calls or have access to the internet, and because we're still trying to maintain a normal lifestyle, and it's really difficult. You know, think about it: 15 hours a week out of your life. It's uh, and we're trying to manage all of our daily activities. You know, I had an interesting situation that actually was patients, difficult patients. I was. Uh, in the clinic, when I was in clinic, I was placed between two elderly ladies. Uh, so it was an elderly lady, me, and another elderly lady, and they started to fight. And you were in between. And I was in between, and you know, one was complaining, the other one said, Shut up, I'm trying to watch Dr. Phil. And, uh, you know, they started screaming at each other, and I was, uh, you know, calling the uh, nurse to help referee the situation because I was afraid they were going to start throwing things and I was in and the middle. in the middle. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was a, a, what would you do as a patient uh, in something like that? If you've got two patients on either side of you fighting, well, the first thing I'd say is duck, all right? <laughs> Make sure you're not there, because they, they've got needles, remember, and they could just start squirting each other. Right. So you want to oh, cover up and horrible. duck, all right? You want to do that. That so would be horrible. The next thing you want to do is, is you, you want to get a hold of the charge nurse, so you want to call it to the attention of the staff and say, oh, over here, I'm sorry, one arm, over here, over here, we need you, we need your help, come over here. And sometimes if the nurse, the, uh, it's, a, it's a law 
that the nurse is supposed to be sit, can, can has you in a position where she can see you. So the mm -hmm. nurse is always going to be able to see you. Mm -hmm. Someone will see you if you raise your hand and say, I need help over here. And then she comes over and say, these two ladies here are going after it. Yeah. And so I, I need some help. Either get me out of here or get one or You're something right. like that. But yeah, I, couldn't, I couldn't get their attention, so I just kinked my line. <laughs> <laughs> and let all the alarms go off and they oh, come There you go, there you go. Yeah. What's the secret ingredient for delicious yet healthier meals? Why, Mrs. Dash seasoning blends, of course. The 12 varieties of Mrs. Dash are all made up with a unique blend of 14 natural herbs and spices to make side dishes snap, potato pop, and dinner stays unbelievable. Since Mrs. Dash has always been salt-free with no MSG, you can create great-tasting meals full of only one thing, mouth-watering flavor. Here's an easy-to-make, healthy recipe idea. Coat some boneless chicken breast in a mixture of Parmesan cheese, breadcrumbs, and Mrs. Dash original blend. Saute in extra virgin olive oil until done. Then give a small squeeze of fresh lemon juice and serve over your favorite pasta. Mmm! Doesn't that sound good? Well, for more information, visit MrsDash.com. Mrs. Dash, salt-free, flavorful. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. Your brain is full of spiders. You've got garlic in your soul, Mr. Grinch. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. A couple of the uh, nurses or techs, I can't remember which ones they were, uh, you know, they come and they'd be working on me and they reeked of cigarette smoke. And that was horrible to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you say, hey, by the way, you stink? Because you know, I didn't want to hurt their feelings. So what would you do in a situation like that? First of all, come right out and say, yeah, you stink mm. in a nice way. In That's nice kind of rough, though. It is. There are very few registered nurses that smoke. Okay, but there are I think the audience few, but, disagrees with you. <laughs> but there are some. There are some who smoke, and they'll go out in the back, and they'll, they'll go outside, and they smoke, then they come in, and they do smell of cigarette. It is a, a, a standard of the, nursing, of the nursing profession that they not smell. Okay, they don't wear perfume. They avoid wearing perfume. They avoid wearing things that are going to be smelly. And if she smells, she wants to know it. She mm -hmm. wants to know. She probably is used to the cigarette smell. Right, smoking. so she doesn't think she, she doesn't smells. Smell, she doesn't think she smells, but right. she wants to know. If, if you can smell her and you tell her, I think she'll be grateful to you if so, you tell her. So what a good way to say is like, have you been smoking? No, absolutely. Is that the right way to approach yes, it? You know, I, I don't want to say smoking? anything, you know, but then what I did was, I think, worse. You know, I, I sprayed her with Lysol when she came over. <laughs> and, uh, and I kept one of those portable fans, you know. Now, now I know it's difficult in today's environment to run a business and staffing issues. And I know the nurse managers deal with uh, technicians. And what do you do when, like, you have staff members who are late a lot, and then that makes me late, uh, you know? How, how do you deal with it? And they're like, well, you've waited in the waiting room for about 30 minutes to an hour, and you get backed up all the time, but it really impacts our life. And then the staff member's like, sorry, we're late. And I'm like, that doesn't work for me. I understand it once, 
and occasionally, but when it happens chronically. But you know, Lori, it's usually not the staff members. I found that it's usually a patient who has shown up late and they start their treatment. They showed up a half hour late, so their treatment's going to go a half hour beyond that. But sometimes that. it's staffing shortages. Yeah, well, that's true. Too, And so it's not always communicated to the patient. Absolutely. And I so th the patient takes it. things personal. Yeah. They think, well, you're making me wait, so if I'm waiting in my time... Well, they're making you wait time. because you're, they labeled you the pain-in-the-ass patient. <laughs> <laughs> what staff need to remember is that if they are running late, uh, they, it's important that someone goes out in the waiting room and tells the patients, I apologize that we're running late, but we're having problems with the water, or we're having problems with this, or this has happened, and this is why we're late. We're working on it. If we don't get you on within the next 30 minutes or so, we'll give you the option of going to the hospital or, you know, oh, giving... Oh, I thought you were going to say, then it's free. <laughs> <laughs> 30 yeah. minutes or late. Then 30 minutes a, a or it's treatment. free. Now, if there's a patient who's showing up late, that, that does create a problem. The nurse is trying to give the patient the full treatment. If a patient has like a four-hour treatment and is supposed to be on at six and then gets, gets done at 10 and then there's a 30-minute window there when another patient starts at 10.30, it's, it's supposed to run like clockwork. But if the first patient shows up an hour late, Correct, yeah. then that's going to throw the next patient off and it's mm -hmm. going to be late and so on and so on. She's trying to be good to that first patient and let him have his full treatment. The solution for that is for the patient who is late. To, but he's cut his own treatment. And Correct. that has to be, that requires a policy change so that the next patient will not have to be waiting an extra long time. I know when I was on dialysis, I would sit there in my dialysis chair, and I don't know what happens, but when your kidneys fail, your hearing improves. And you can hear everything. And I would hear like all of these stories I did not need to hear about what happened over the weekend with healthcare professionals. Some of it was quite interesting. It was a little bit like Desperate Housewives. <laughs> but um, what do you do about gossip? They're not supposed to be doing That is very unprofessional, very unprofessional. And if they are, the PCTs or even sometimes the nurses are discussing their personal private lives where you can hear it, then it's a matter of complaining to the charge nurse or especially to the clinic manager. The clinic manager hears about that. She's going to hit the ceiling. She's going to be very angry about it. I actually like to hear the story. Uh, so I, always, I, always, I always pretended to be asleep. Yeah. You know? So you could listen to them. Right. Or I put headsets on and cut the volume. Yeah, down. so you can, you can hear. Well, you like gossip. but oh, I some, love you it. Know, some people, I, I mean, when and I, I go through the checkout line at the grocery store and I listen to the, te the checker telling their talking about their lives and things that I don't like it so I, I know what you're talking well, about. Well I like to look at what yeah. other people are buying at the grocery store. So I, well, I, well yeah what happened to me is that I heard gossip but I actually heard them talking about another staff member and things they had done wrong and so that in turn makes me not want that healthcare professional to take care of me. Absolutely. And yes, so definitely. it's yeah it was like well so and so's late and they didn't do this and they didn't do their charting and you know you can hear this stuff and then you feel well, oh my goodness, I don't want, I don't want that person taking care of me. And then it's just a natural instinct, but it's like you have, you heard about somebody and you don't really know it's true because it is hearsay. And then that person comes up to you, but you automatically think, are they professional? And then you kind of coil back and you don't give them a first chance. And I like when the staff members threaten to give you the bad staff member. Hey, you better sit still. I'm going to have Rhonda stick you. <laughs> then you'll be sorry. 
We'll teach you. I said, which Rhonda? They go, the Rhonda that shakes all the time. Well, I, I think, first of all, I, I, I'm sure that I speak for ANNA and all the technicians that uh, I apologize that you heard that. That should not have happened. There is no incident where staff members should speak ill of each other, especially where patients can hear that. That's unprofessional. And patients who experience that should use that word, unprofessional, and they should go and tell the clinic manager the staff are being unprofessional, I know about their private lives, and the clinic manager will take care of it. Do most dialysis facilities have a comment box? Because a lot of times patients feel if they say something, they'll be retaliated against. Um, it's a real fear about speaking up. But aren't those anonymous, usually, the comment? Yeah. I, I don't know, but do, yes. do all dialysis you, you units have a comment box? You can do that. Uh, almost all dialysis clinics have one or are supposed to. All the large corporations have a policy that they have a comment box. What happens is that the comment got box gets pushed over to the corner and then it falls off the table and people forget that it's there. But there should be one where a patient can write an anonymous comment and a, there should be someone checking it weekly. But of course, from thin paper to thick action, sometimes right. there's a long way. Okay? It's, that's a, a very big concern of patients is that we are fearful. and. You know, really, the, the whole discussion about difficult staff, difficult patients comes down to communication, um, understanding how to communicate. But it's very difficult sometimes to say how you're feeling. And I, I know for myself, when nurses would stick me or I would ever, anything would happen, and I would never cry because I was always reinforced that I was a good patient because I didn't cry. And later on, after lots of therapy, um, I learned that if I didn't cry at the event, I would cry at a later date. And so I was always reassured by the healthcare professional, oh, you're such a good patient. But I think it's really important to encourage patients to try to experience their feelings when it's happening because they bottle up inside of them and then they don't know what to do with them. And then they become so overwhelming that they overreact to a situation that was really pretty simple. Well, that, that, that's one of the tenets of psychology, that if you repress an emotion, it's going to show up someplace else. Okay? If, you, if you continuously hold it in, you're going to get uh, an irritable bowel syndrome or you're going to get uh, spasticolitis or you're going to have some kind of a problem physically because you're not expressing your emotions. And you did right by, by going ahead and letting yourself cry. I, I've cried in the dialysis clinic many times, and, and I think it's appropriate for, for people. To, we are in a, in a situation that, that calls for crying. It's an appropriate affect. I mean, I had to go to Toastmasters to figure out how to speak effectively because I would have somebody come in and sit down, and I had this speech prepared in my head. But then when I was going to say it, it wouldn't come out of my throat. But it's embarrassing, it would just kind of stay though, there. when it you is. cry, especially when they're just taking your blood pressure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I tell you, blood pressure can be painful if you've had an old access in your arm. When it, like I have one up here, and if they t take my blood pressure, it doesn't work anymore. But it is painful. Um, if an access is clotted. Oh, very painful. I mean, I have to like hold my breath sometimes when they take my blood pressure, even today. You know, in, in talking about pain, this is more for when I was in the hospital in the transplant. You know, I always ask the question, is this going to hurt? Because I'm so nervous about whether right. something's going to hurt. And I say, you know, I want to start pressing my pain button 30 minutes before. 
you know, yeah. you do this procedure. And they would never say, yes, it's going to hurt. They'd always use the same word. They say, well, it's going to feel uncomfortable. Or it's going to sting. It, it, it's or, or it's, yeah. Well, they always use the word uncomfortable. And I hated that word. I, I learned to associate the word uncomfortable with extreme pain. That's part of the, uh, the psychology behind it. They don't want to say, yes, it's going to hurt. Right, because but I wish they would so I could prepare. Okay, because I was expecting it, to be uncomfortable. It might work for you. It may work worse for another patient. Would say, yes, this is going to hurt like hell, and the patients are going to start screaming right away, and, and it, it's going to be difficult. So they <laughs> they try to minimize the pain. Right. We always try to emphasize the positive, and tell people, you know, it will it, it will be uncomfortable, or you know, yeah. you can recover from this, or you get. It's it's important to keep a right frame of mind. The patient has to be. A, a, have a positive attitude, like like Lori's book has indicated, chronically happy. You have to be constantly focusing on the positive. The real title of the book is Chronically Happy, Damn It. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like the post-transplant coordinator, uh, and I said, you know, I'm really worried about them taking out the uh, Foley catheter, because uh, a long time ago I had a, a, a surgery, and they started to take out the Foley catheter, but they forgot to deflate it. So she goes, oh, no, they'll deflate it and everything. And I said, so you're, I don't have to worry about the Foley catheter. She goes, no, wait till they get that arm in to take out the stent when they go through your penis and with a camera. Oh she goes, then, gosh. you know, then you can worry about that. You know. Oh, my gosh. So. Uh, uh, yeah, please, what, what happened? <laughs> it hurt. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's uh, being a filmmaker, they said, yeah, they stick a camera up there. And I said, where does the crew stand? <laughs> I was embarrassed. Where's the director? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, one of the nurses that I was very close to, she would always quote another patient's experience, like, you know, I had another patient that had this procedure, and they said it was this. So it kind of gets them off the hook if it doesn't work yeah, out well. but if they do that in a negative way, they go, I had a 12-year-old do it. It was nothing. They didn't shed a tear, and then you're screaming like a, a, a little girl, you know, and it, it's embarrassing. It, well, pain is a, is a very idiosyncratic. I, I have a low very, threshold for pain. Okay, yeah. yeah. A, a lot of people That's why have women have babies. Pain. That's why <laughs> you would never survive childbirth. No, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I would just adopt. <laughs> you know. A lot of and, and what nurses do is try to minimize it in some way because um, some patients uh, there's no way of knowing how a patient is going to respond to pain. It it hurts some people a lot more than it does others. Some people you just show them the needle and they faint. Mm -hmm. They just cannot. Oh, then it. you're out, and then you don't then feel you're any out. pain. Yes, very easy stick. It's then. perfect. Okay, they're, they're, it's not no discomfort whatsoever. Other people can just uh, tolerate quite a bit of pain, and they're okay. They're comfortable. Mm -hmm. So there's no way to know where every individual patient is. So mm -hmm. let's minimize it. Let's just assure all the patients and say it will be uncomfortable. Right. And that's it. So it's wrong to ask for general anesthesia for a flu shot. <laughs> Postman, here you go. Hmm. I won the million-dollar giveaway sweepstakes. Oh, I finally got my tax refund check. Oh, my God. I, I can't believe this. I got my order of Dairy Delicious. Oh, boy. Milkshakes, creamy soup, cereal with milk, and pudding. <laughs> Why is Mr. Smith so excited about his Dairy Delicious? 
I have a hint. You see, Mr. Smith is on dialysis, and Dairy Delicious is real milk especially created for kidney patients. It has half the potassium and half the phosphorus of regular 2% milk, but it has 100% of the flavor. Perfect for people who love dairy products and need to keep their lab values normal and dietitians happy. And most of all, it's delicious. Thousands who have tried Dairy Delicious sing its praises. See what I mean? To order your own Dairy Delicious and possibly get as excited as Mr. Smith here, call 1-877-4-DAIRY-7. That's 1-877-432-4797. Or visit DairyDelicious.com. Dairy healthy, dairy good, dairy delicious. The milk that's made for you. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel, Mr. Grinch. You're a bad banana with a greasy black heel. Now, what do you do with a healthcare professional who is just rude? Do you just say you're rude? Let's look at the situation. If it does happen, you know, very rarely, if this person is rarely, rarely rude and then is having a bad day and is rude on a one day, you know, and I think that's, that's something that the patient can take into account and say, well, I, I can tell you're having a bad day. Let's just, um, let's just not talk anymore or something. But if it's a person who is chronically or, or almost all the time is, is snippy, and rude and you know impolite and not friendly at all that is not being professional and she is supposed to be uh, she's supposed to be friendly but not familiar okay and she is supposed to be friendly so a if you are comfortable talking to the clinic manager then that would be the good thing to do is to tell the clinic manager this person is just not friendly or this person is a little hostile and aggressive with me sometimes and the clinic manager will be very glad to hear about that. The other, if you're not comfortable with doing it, then what you could do is talk to the social worker or to the charge nurse and just individually sit and say, well, is, is so-and-so having a bad day or is so-and-so, you know, I've noticed that she does this a lot. She is rude with me a lot and, and it, it, maybe it's me or is it other people and try to minimize it. But as soon as you make them aware that there's a problem, they're going to try to do something about it. You've got to let them know. This is a God's honest, true story. I was going to a doctor regularly, a particular doctor, and the lady, the nurse who was at the front desk was always rude. She was rude and short and snippy. And you know, who do you talk to in an office situation? So I decided when the doctor came in to see me, after about the fifth or sixth time, I was going to talk to the doctor. You yes. know, So I yes. had the doctor examine me. We talked about the medical stuff. I said, I, you know, I don't really complain and everything. I said, but the nurse at the front desk is the rudest person I have ever met in my life. She clearly hates her job. And he says... I'll talk to her. I'll there tell my wife you said so. <laughs> That's a God's honest truth. It was his wife. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, never I complain again. <laughs> I hope it helped. Well, you talk about being friendly. Now, I've actually heard of this happening. What about staff and patients dating? Oh, that struck a nerve with the audience. <laughs> Getting off. They got a great friendly. health plan. If they got a great health plan, it could work out for the patients. Okay. Um, uh, first, people are in contact, in close contact with each other a lot. Okay, in a dialysis clinic, staff and patients see each other very often. They get to know quite a bit about each other. We know quite a lot about the patients, 
and the patients know us as professionals. The staff do not really, the patients do not really know the staff. What they know is a professional. They don't know what she looks like in the morning when she first wakes up. You know, they don't know how she how she acts when she's feeling sick or things like that. They just see the ideal person who always attends to them and takes care of them. So that's something patients should keep in mind. The pe the staff member that you're seeing is really not the true person in her completeness. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is, uh, it does even even so it could happen. We have young sincere people who find each other attractive and fall in love. And it happens. I mean, it does happen. If it, if, and these people want to get together monogamously and spend the rest of their lives together and have children and so on. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Where the problem comes is that they stay in the same clinic. What they need to do is one of them needs to leave the, leave the clinic. Either it, it would be easier for the staff member to leave probably, so the staff member needs to go and work at another clinic and then they can continue to date each other. Provided they're not married. Now, okay, if one of them's married or both of them, we don't need that kind of stuff going on, okay? That's got to stop if either one of them married. So married patients, just keep your eyes to yourself. You know, it's funny, you know, when you're in school and you see your teacher outside of school mm -hmm. when you were a kid, and it, it looks so weird to see your teacher not in a school situation. I remember being in a mall one time and I saw two techs that I had no idea that they were dating. And, you know, they were holding hands and everything. And I, I was thinking, is that... Johnny and, and Susie or something like that. And I could tell because they were both wearing rubber gloves. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, we have a couple of minutes before we have to wrap up the oh, show. Oh, we should ask from have well, some questions. Do we have questions. a couple of questions? Does anybody have any questions from the audience? Yes. How do you feel when you have a new staff person take care of you that's being oriented? I didn't like it. I didn't like it either. If it's a new staff member um, taking your blood pressure and stuff, but I think the thing that's most critical sticking. is sticking. Sticking in access is such a difficult thing, but I know nurses have to be trained. I mean, there's no other way. So I think it's really important to find that patient that feels pretty secure and you know will allow you to do that and recognize the difficulty that you know they're actually allowing like we're basically a guinea pig but it has to happen because we need more healthcare professionals what i i didn't like was you know they said we have somebody new that's going to stick you today uh it's fred over there and fred's reading the book that says how to cannulate <laughs> that scared me to it's, death the book is called cannulation for dummies right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly yes what uh, would you suggest is the best way of introducing a new staff to take care of you as Lori said you have have a patient you have some patients that are the old guard some patients that have been around for a while and it's a good opportunity for the patient to show off how much he knows about his access okay and he he brings over the new staff member it's important to include patients in educating staff members so that the new staff member comes over and the patient then says okay I have an AV fistula I have, and you know what it is? It is a vein and an artery that were put together, and look, feel it right here. Now here's where it needs to be stuck, and here's how I like it. Now go ahead and get your needle, and let's practice, and, and bring your needle here, and I'll tell you if you're going in the right direction, or if it looks like you're pointing too low, or something, so that the patient then is instructing the staff member, and the staff member is gonna follow the patient's instructions. I think the patient will feel better about that. Yeah, I don't know if the staff the, member would feel better if you oh, say, now go get your needle, <laughs> and stick it in here, well, they just and then said, you go eat your microwave popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will help the patient feel in control. 
And if the, if the patient is feeling in control of this new situation, it will make it a lot easier for her. I don't know. You're right. The staff member member yeah, may not may, feel as comfortable you're condescending, with it. But, yeah. but it, you know, they have to they have to learn at uh, from the get go at the very start. The patient is the most important member of the treatment team. Right. The patient is the one who cast a deciding vote in everything. Mm -hmm. So they have to allow that for the patients. They have to make room for patients' feelings and for yeah. the patients instructing them. You, you really assess somebody by body language in about a minute. And I think one of the things that for me is I like to see confidence but not overconfidence. It's that middle line and having a concern of wanting to do a good job. Hey, I'm, I'm new and I've been through, I'm so excited to be here, showing a level of enthusiasm, wanting, caring about your job. It's a really good trick for long-term patients is just this, I mean, you may know, but they have a wealth of knowledge. If you sit down to a long-term patient, they will tell you so much about dialysis that you will never learn in any other classes, anything else. So just give them that respect, and I, that's how I would work through it. And just tell the new staff members that, you know, you need to present a level of confidence. And that's a lot of body language, just holding your head up and your shoulders back and looking people in the eye, and we, we assess people that quickly. And sitting, I do and, and sitting down also. And sitting that's down, it. not standing and looking. It's very intimidating um, feeling. So that's w a, a suggestion. Well, I, I think we have one more question, and then we have to wrap it up. So how do we feel about the terminology, all the acronyms that you use? Uh, for myself, um, I've had to deal with other illnesses. I'm very familiar with all the acronyms in kidney disease. But I tell you, if, if we don't understand you, you really can't say all the acronyms. And we had a great uh, guest yesterday who told a story about she um, was a patient. She was very friendly with the patient, you know, communicating. And then she basically walked by and said, oh, so-and-so needs a new bath because the machine she went said off. She so-and-so needs a bath. So-and-so needs a bath. Yes. And he actually thought that she meant that she needed a bath and and <laughs> not that you had to change not the, the bath, bath. <laughs> and so we're not really familiar with the language and sometimes you know you have to really think about that you know the, the term ESRD end-stage renal disease is enough to put you over the edge so um, secondary hyperparathyroidism yeah SHBT <laughs> I wanted to commit suicide when I heard that one <laughs> Well, Romero, it's been an absolute delight to have you here. It's been wonderful. I feel like I've been on the Jay Leno show now. <laughs> <laughs> we can control our own destiny. We can take charge of our health and ask questions about our medical options. We can form partnerships with our health care team. We can take steps towards self-improvement. We can be sensitive to the impact of our disease on our family. We can sing, dance, laugh, and enjoy our lives. We can appreciate today and look forward to tomorrow. We can help and support our fellow patients. We can pursue our hopes and dreams. We can make a difference. Renal Support Network would like to thank everyone who has made this show possible. 
Kidney Talk's founding sponsor is Amgen. Generous support is provided by Roche Pharmaceuticals and Astellas. Friends of Kidney Talk are Abbott Laboratories, American Region, and Fresenius Medical Care North America. Thank you for helping us stream health, happiness, and hope to the kidney community. Visit rsnhope.org for more information. The opinions, recommendations, statements, and advice contained on Kidney Talk are for information only. You should not use the information on the show to diagnose or treat a health problem or disease without first consulting with a qualified health care provider. Please consult with your health care provider about any questions or concerns you may have regarding your condition or dietary regimen.